The subject of the talk, the closing talk of our retreat together is in our house, in our apartment. I remember three years ago on the day that my daughter was born, we were living in the community in Kent, Gillett, the name of the community, and the labour period for Gwanwin had had got underway and it had gone on for quite a few hours and rather unfortunately she was unable to have the child at home because of a long period in fact throughout much of the pregnancy of bleeding so her situation was one of a threatened miscarriage and since we were quite a few miles away from a hospital for the safety factor it was necessary for us to go to the hospital and she had been in labour at that time, and we were in the community for some 30 hours. Then labour became much stronger, and the ambulance came, and we went to the hospital. And right up to that point, even in the ambulance, and that was about 3 o'clock in the morning, we were in very good spirits, really very good, good spirits, and Gwanwin was handling very, very well the contractions. And I always remember the moment when we walked into the hospital, of course, middle of the night, very quiet, hardly anybody around, and we walked into the delivery room. And suddenly, the spirit inside of us both, simultaneously, went out. It just went out of us. And we both went, and it was the clinical atmosphere. Everything was so utterly clean and precise and tidy, and there was no sense in the delivery room of anything familiar, anything homely, anything loving, any, anything warm. And we both drained, and Gwangwin says, I don't want to stay. I don't care, I don't, want, I don't care, I just don't want to stay here. And, and yet there was no real choice because of the long history of bleeding through the pregnancy. So we talked about it, all the while the contractions are going on, you think we're trying to sort it. Anyway, I won't go into it. <laughs> all of that. And we decided to try to work with this situation. And the labour actually went on for another 12 or 13 hours after we were in there. So it was a 43, 44 hour labour. And it was quite extraordinary that as we connected and reconnected and we did the breathing together and generating something within ourselves with regard to that, the room seemed to change that something was vibrating within our own uh, interconnection which seemed and really did for us change the atmosphere of being in the delivery room. And the birth proceeded, the birth, she gave birth in the squatting position. The midwife said, in all of my 30 years, I have never seen a <laughs> birth delivered in this posture before. <laughs> and, um, and then after the birth, we asked her, we said, thank you very much, goodbye, and <laughs> very politely, and so that she wouldn't get into the old habit of they take the baby and they hold the baby upside down to test the height of the baby and the weight. And she kindly left us and we just stayed in that room together for three hours. And I realized, it really struck me at that time, how we as human beings, in particular situations that we find ourselves in, and particularly can feel alienated from how we have the power within us to transform the situation. 
by our own willingness and energy. And in light of that, or in respect to that, I would like us all to give consideration to ways and means within our own home, within the house that we live or the apartment that we live in, no matter how short-term it may be, or the room, how you and I can explore ways in which we make our home have a presence and have a quality to it. And I rather like this term that Catherine uh, referred to yesterday when we had the meeting of a peace centre. And to somehow or other make our actual homes something of a peace centre in this world. And that there be a spark of light in our own home. For many, of course, there already. But many ways that you and I can explore that further and really establish that peace centres in this world. And in that, it seems to me that it's got something to do with form in our home, it has something to do with the contents, it's got something to do, I think very important one I find for myself, something to do with the sense of space in one's home, and of course something to do with the atmosphere which one establishes in that. And in that, there are a number of ways that we can look at about how we can develop and apply that. And, of course, within the context of that, like with everything else in making our home a place which we appreciate, of course, which we love, which can be at times a place of refuge from the distressing factors of the world, a place of spirituality, a temple, if you will, an ashram. That would mean looking at, in the same way as you and I have been doing here together, looking at how we can explore that, how we can develop that sense in our household. And that includes the activities of the places where we spend our primary hours, whether it's in our living room, what happens in the living room, what's the major activity, if we have a room which is separate from that, a kitchen, what's in the kitchen, the contents of the kitchen, what we actually eat, very, very important, and our relationship to that, our relationship to our bedroom, our life, our activities, in there and making each of those rooms in our house, if we are amongst the privileged who have those, the separation of such rooms, that we make each of those rooms in our house a place of our practice and we explore that and give care and consideration to that in such a way that it becomes an ashram for us. And I feel there's a whole possibility for us to develop a whole new concept in our home life and to develop that. And if we take some of those areas of our home life, one which I feel is very important, of course it refers to the kitchen life, is with regard to what we eat. And here there is, I feel rather unfortunately in the tradition, uh, rather in the Buddhist tradition, there is, tends to still be, particularly in the East and still to some degree in the West, a lack of awareness with regard to diet. This may not apply to many of you here, but still there's so often a neglect in this area. And that area of diet brings in, and especially these days of course, an ethical consideration. And an ethical consideration is one which considers animals and their plight and their suffering and the degree of suffering 
which is entailed for animals, particularly under this mode of factory farming. There's the area too, you know, looking at our diet of moderation. There's the area of mindfulness and the whole area as has been encouraged and as a real reminder to us on this Easter weekend of the Last Supper, of making eating a spiritual experience and finding ways and means in our home life to establish that kind of atmosphere when one is eating alone or eating with friends or eating with one's children that one brings to it not the mechanical mind but a certain quality to it. It may just be as often done in many homes just sitting for a moment or two holding hands in silence. It may be just one person expressing the appreciation for the interconnectedness of things. You know, so that our children don't think that our food comes from the supermarket. That they understand that it comes from the labour of people who have worked out in the fields and have often worked out in the fields of the third world. And they have a feeling of the interconnectedness of all the events that come about. And I think we as children of the earth, we have to remind ourselves of this, that life is interconnected and for one item of food to reach our table, it's gone through many hands and a tremendous amount of effort and energy and hardship in order for that to happen. And somehow or other, within our meal period, a reminder, a moment, or as I mentioned the other night in the talk, like, like with Gradman, where just using a candle instead of an electric light just those kind of moments which help to bring a quality to that time. And I think we really have a time and opportunity for this. And it's rather similarly in the whole area of life in one's bedroom. You know, and quite often as people speak of and we experience this, the movement of mind in terms of the sexual fantasy. We notice again and again from the world that we live in, one only has to look through the advertising to see the constant message of sex. Society has become obsessed with it. It gets into so many areas of life. We're selling even the most ordinary product. Somehow or other, the connotation of sex with that product. And there's been, I noticed, a growing amount of research in this area about the way that the media and the advertising industry uses the subtlety of the message to relate one thing with another, relate sexuality with this, sexuality with that. And of course in that there's a considerable abuse of human relationship and particularly an abuse of women. And in our own home, in the old language, let us say, there was this emphasis on the precepts meaning as an aspect of that practice and that quality of practice of life, freedom from exploitation, sexual exploitation. And it requires from us in that area a real care and sensitivity. And as is well known and increasingly more documented, a great deal of sexual abuse in personal relationship is generated between people who know each other. We are familiar with the gross forms of sexual abuse and the impersonality element to it. But there's much which can take place, the manipulative factor which can take place between 
husband and wife, between lovers, between the refusal of one person, one partner, to hear the wishes of the other and the desire of the mind, the wanting of the mind, impressing itself in such a way on another that the other person denies their feelings, denies their wish in a moment not to be engaged in sexuality. And in this area, and one of these areas I feel which we men have to listen to, both in ourselves and in the other, this question of sensitivity and balance and that relationship which doesn't exert its will on somebody else, the sexual will in this case, on another person. And that requires a lot of care and sensitivity. And that's one of the areas, shall we say, for an awareness and sensitivity in our home, in another's home, in the bedroom. In our home too, sometimes people find the usefulness and the great validity, I feel, of ways and means in our home of generating reminders. And sometimes it's in the form of a symbol, sometimes it's in the form of a picture or in the form of an image. What I feel about that is, if it's going to be useful, anything, if it's going to be a reminder to oneself, and I remember when some years ago, Tan Maha Goshananda, he visited here as the Cambodian monk who was here a few days ago, a long-standing friend of John and I, and we were in the same monastery together some 10 or 12 years ago. And Maha Goshananda, within the monastery where we lived, was a hermit. Nothing else can describe him as that, insofar as he never, except for his meal, came out of his hut. You would not see him for months. He'd just come out, get his food, go back in, that was it. You know, and the room would be, I suppose, about nine feet by nine feet, something like that. And he just stayed in there. And only one or two of us were able to get into the inner sanctum. And I was one of the, uh, one of the two. <laughs> one of the, and occasionally he would invite me in. And in his room, it, it was such a... Um, a room where Goshananda had made his presence felt in those weeks and months in that room. And he'd have little notices pinned up on his wall, and he'd have Dharma messages written on his hand. And so wherever you looked, you, you're getting these messages, be mindful, be watchful, do this, do like that. And there was a kind of quality to it of good humour and warmth, which when one was outside of that hut and just doing one's meditation as the rest of us did outside in the grounds that made one wish to be present there. Go and to make contact with Goshananda. And he spent several years in this room. And we thought, well, we thought he was there indefinitely. And then came this, this horrendous bombing and then the subsequent tragedy of Cambodia and, and the flight of the people of uh, Kampuchea into Thailand and the setting up of refugee camps. When that began to happen, he moved, he just left that room, just like that. He moved up into northeast Thailand, went to the refugee camps in tens of thousands of people there and just began working with these people. And just moved, just went like that. No holding on to the past, just moved on. And when somebody said, because he had threats on his life, when somebody said to him, Tan Maha, here's an air ticket to Paris. 
You don't have to stay here if the situation is too threatening, there are too many who are against you. Here's an air ticket to Paris. So he took the air ticket and then he went to the airline, he cashed it and with it he printed something like a million meta leaflets loving-kindness, little loving-kindness leaflets, and went back to the refugee camps and promptly distributed them <laughs> all out. So recently he just gave me a photograph, you may have seen it, of him with the present Pope. And just talking with him, I think he has the unusual distinction in that when he met the Pope, he walked straight up to him, gave him such a big hug that he lifted him, the Pope straight off the ground. <laughs> And so it's now said that the first time in recorded history the Pope was swept off his feet. But anyway, <laughs> such is the power of loving kindness. <laughs> so in other words, within one's home one can create an atmosphere. And in that creation of that atmosphere too, I feel the sense of space is very, very important. It's one of the themes for you and I which come up a great deal in our life. We appreciate space and having space in our life and there's something inwardly, I think it almost intuitively, which we rebel against in being cramped, in being trapped, in being enclosed, in being caught up, both inwardly psychologically speaking as well as in our relationship to the world. And this sense of space and the reminders of space means that our environment can be very helpful for that and the environment where we spend many, many hours, and particularly, of course, the winter months, is in our house, in our home, in our room. And what I wanted to suggest to you, that when you are returning home today, that you and I too, when I return home tomorrow evening, that upon going home, that I look in my home, and I look around my home to see ways and means that I can bring greater sense of space in my home so that what I have in my home is functional, it is useful or it is artistic and it is creative and it is a reminder and the form of it is in conjunction with the space. And that to have, and I think which is very, very, very useful and what uh, Gwanwin and I like to do is that sometimes we find ourselves you know, it might be uh, unwanted Christmas presents which people give, usually our parents. And, uh, <laughs> and just things get added, more things what we actually need. And it's that, that nice feeling which we have where one goes through one's home right from top to bottom and sees and looks at things to see, do I need? And to give this away to a charity shop or to an organization where somehow or other those things can get redistributed so that you and I are not cluttering up and I think it's helpful in that every so often to just to have that examination that going through to see what we need and that is something of a reminder to us in our life to develop in life this attitude of mind of contentment with little and of course I mean we can go too far and too extreme and empty out our household and be living on wooden boxes, but I haven't uh, quite got that in my mind. And this means that each area and each part of our house becomes something of our retreat house, it becomes something of a home for spirituality. And in that, I feel, of course, what must go with that, the extension of that, is of course people who come to our home, no matter who that person is. 
Because I, I've often noticed in our home, and I'm sure you experience the same, that somebody comes round to pay a visit, they may have announced before or they just drop in, and there's quite often, it's often a place you can almost tell by the knock on the door or when you open the door, whether that person has a background of fear in that moment. And I've often quite noticed, someone comes to the door and they say, you know, sorry to turn up like this, or you don't mind me just dropping in, do you? And there's a definite background of fear. They've come to see you because they like, hopefully they like you and uh, want to see you. But there's a fear there of coming at the wrong time. I can come back later, etc., etc. And I feel that our re immediate reaction to that fear is very important, particularly for people who come and already suffer in life through being rejected. And here, just as you and I hear that we've, in our practice and as the staff so uh, beautifully do, try to make it a center where anyone can come into this kind of spiritual home and feel at home, feel comfortable, feel that there's that care. And somehow that kind of message in our home, in our room, needs to be extended. And that may mean that in that time, not every single time, but in that time, we let go of what we are doing. There are some things more important in life than having a beautifully clean and tidy home and saying, I'm sorry, I can't see you now, I'm vacuuming. <laughs> Whatever it might be. I'm sorry, I can't talk to you now, Dallas is on. That kind of rea reaction. And I think we were brought up on that generation and it's time that we somehow moved on. And one of the th things in that area, because we get to the living room now, I can have a field day on this one, <laughs> that our living at our home, that this sense of making the person welcome and being received and acknowledge, I feel, is such an essential element within the field of communication. And that obviously is with regard to our living room. And one of the things which keeps our population hypnotized and in a passive position is that TV. It's a monstrous actuality and symbol for the paralyzing effect that it has on the population every night. It paralyzes the mind. And there's very few things on TV which reach one. And so occasionally, I haven't seen it, but occasionally something gets, comes across like the day after, which I just heard about, one or two of you mentioned. But how many programs in the course of the year can one say, this reached me? And much which we see doesn't touch. It's just a form of mental entertainment whether it's the suffering of the people in Nicaragua or in the Lebanon, whether it's a crisis at home or in a, one's home country or whatever. And there needs to be real discrimination. And I know in, as one of the people that I can sit and watch anything on the TV. I can see a soap opera as a, as a sociological inquiry, <laughs> whatever. So as a result of that, we don't have a TV. 
Gwenwin says, we're not, we have a, there's a relationship between three of us in this house, we're not going to make it four. <laughs> <laughs> and if one does, one really needs discernment, because in the US has the highest number of hours per week. Television is watched. More people watch TV in the States per hours per week than any other country on the earth. 23 hours per week per person in this country. Isn't that amazing? England is second, 21 hours and something. Just phenomenal. So if one has a television in one's home, one may say, ah, oh, one can meditate in front of the television. <laughs> <laughs> one might be able to. I, one's supposed to regard that anything can be an object for one's meditation. But I would say the results will be much better <laughs> if the television set is switched off. <laughs> Well, we get much more insight there when it's switched off. All right. So, again, sometimes something which enables one to be aware of that sphere of influence, and as a friend of ours does in their home, they simply have, they have a television in the home, but they have a cloth covering the thing. And so to actually put it on requires some recognition or awareness that there should be something very necessary and valuable for that observation. And it's not easy because when we're feeling a bit lonely, when we're feeling bored, when we're feeling rejected, when we don't know what to do with ourselves or whatever, that becomes a way of pacifying the mind. But it doesn't deal with the, what's happening inside. It simply pushes it away. So in our living room, in the giving care and attention to our relationship, to our home, to our viewing, to our listening, without going to extremes, but you and I listening for ourselves, inwardly. And the other, a major area too, and I feel a very important area, and one, one which also comes up in our home life with some frequency, and as I say, all areas for looking at with care, and that's the whole area of money, and what money means to us. And I really would be wary, and it's not always possible, and certainly not always easy in this regard, to be wary of getting into debt. In the old tradition, and I think it's a very valuable insight of the Buddha, the Buddha has strongly recommended, this was the time when men and women were kind of stuck in the home life, in terms of the role, which particularly for women, which they couldn't move out of, they were just subjected to it, as many still are in this world. A background which the Buddha laid down as rather necessary for one's spiritual practice, one, he said, is being free from debts. And what I've noticed, with regard to the wisdom of that is that when a person has debts and a lot of debts and a growing number of debts it's hard for the mind to feel real rest and peace and that in the practice in the meditation it can come up with quite some degree of frequency you know how I've got to pay this off how am I going to pay this off where's the money going to come from and that can just keep running through the mind for a long time until one has that feeling, as it were, of not being in debt to. And we've all experienced that, where we've borrowed some money and then we've paid it back, and it feels, and it is, such a relief that it's over. And so it's more than just borrowing, it's, it, 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 there's something else psychologically speaking which can be unpleasant for us 
dependency being a factor. So in that area of our relationship to money, looking at it with care, looking at it what that means for us. It's a little bit different from my little daughter's worldview. Children have such a sometimes a really enchanting worldview. We'll be at home and Granny and I say, Oh, I haven't got any I haven't run out of I haven't got any money, We've run out of money. And then the Shona will say, Oh, you know, go to the bank. So we go to the bank. And her image is if you have no money, you go to the high street and you write and I sit I take her with me and Sarah, that's a Christina's when the children are at Christina's daughter, the same age, three years old, and Nadia, her other little friend, three years old. And three of us will go we'll go to the bank. And the child's view is it's a lovely view. If you have no money, you go to the bank, you write on a piece of paper how much you need, and the bank is there to give anybody any money that they require. What a lovely concept for living. <laughs> and so we come out, and as soon as we walk out of the bank, and one of the children will say, you know, crisps, money. You do something with it, you know, crisp, this one, crisp. <laughs> Unfortunately, the bank doesn't seem to work like that. <laughs> and it's, again, you and I, it's giving those rather obvious areas of life a certain kind of awareness and attention, and that couples in with a certain value of a certain moderation in living, being mindful of one's inflows and outflows. And I suppose in that respect, I think all of us find, I certainly find, that the phenomena of money in our relationship to it is literally that one feels that one is simply a conveyor belt for it, and that one doesn't have too much relationship to it in a real way. In other words, you know, people, as, as you do here for us, very kindly um, give support to us. The money comes in in one hand, and then we receive, we, we hold it for a while, and a few days later we pay it out. And it just flows in and flows out, and one would like a little bit more to be left behind, but this is the way the flow of it goes. And having a relationship to it, and some of us have, you know, in our own practice have needed to give care and uh, attention to that in such a way in our life that we understand money without it being a source of pressure. Having a, a comfortable relationship with that. And one of the things with regard to the centre itself, I just want to speak a little bit about this as a spiritual home for people, is that the principles on which the centre runs, and in that regard which the teachers who come here work, is something, is a value, I would say, which we can generate and find ways and means to explore in our daily life situation. And there is this long tradition which Jinian would have referred to yesterday evening within the, the tradition of the Dharma that that which is freely received is freely given. It's not a quotation dating back thousands of years. And so people like John and I and Joseph and Jack and Sharon and Christina and others, we had the opportunity to, in this case, to be in the East to receive these teachings. In the course of the period of time, there's been a certain... Uh, in our own practice, coming back here to the West, communication of these ancient teachings, and in that, endeavouring to maintain and are maintaining that kind of spirit of continuity. Not long ago, for example, in mean, the beginning of the first retreat, I was, as I've done previously, went to Interface. This is an organisation in the Boston area 
which puts a, a lot of programs in terms of evening workshops and weekend workshops in many fields. And many of the teachers from here have gone there for an evening to give a talk on different meditation or some aspect of life. And when I was first invited there a couple of years ago, it was arranged through a good friend of the center here, Larry Rosenberg. And Larry, and Larry said, would I like to go and give an evening workshop there for a, about a three hour session from seven till 10. And then he mentioned that the charge for people to go there is $5 for an evening. Now, then this was a departure from here. Here, when you come here, you pay for the running costs. Includes teachers' airfares, the food, the heating bills, the mailings, and all that expenditure. But this, people were paying to come to listen to the talk. Part of that money goes to Interface, and part of that money goes to the speaker for the evening. And this happened, this was two years ago, and I, for the first time I was faced with a situation, people are paying to hear the Dharma. That gave me something to sit with for a day or two, because I never entered into that mode. So I asked Larry, Larry Rosenberg, about it, and he spoke to me. He's been teaching there for many years, and Johnny Kabat-Zinn. And they, they said on the very sound ethical principles that the interface people work upon, a lot of people working there in a voluntary capacity. And listening to that, plus the fact that $5 a day is affordable, plus the fact that there can be a kind of, say, a scholarship for a person who is in a very poor, low-income group, I felt comfortable with the situation. And I just mention it as an example, I feel, where in our life, these are all areas in ways and means which we can look at situations in our life to see what feels appropriate. And there is a tendency at the present time, particularly in the field of therapy, I feel, though it, I realize it costs a great deal to undergo a training course in therapy and all the difficulties of getting going, that there are some people who are charging, asking too much. I mean, some people say I'm putting it too mildly. And somehow or other, the wanting factor, the greed factor, can get in on what, that which is a service. Now, it's not possible and to people who live in this kind of old, this kind of style which John and I and others principle upon we which we work. But still, we need some awareness to find some kind of ways and means which make practices accessible and the wisdom of Western therapy and so forth accessible to a wider range of people. And a major consideration of that is the economic aspect of it. And that certainly has been proved out by the tremendous response by the meditators to the center here, which reduced the daily rate from over $15 a day, it's now come down to $12.5 a day. And that's because more than $30,000 was posted in by people to help bring the rate down, which is in stark contrast in this world to the where everything's going up, up, up. That's an expression of the commitment of the board, the staff, the teachers, and the meditators to care and awareness for people who are financially in hard times. And as we know in the Western world, that the number of those people in the last five years due to this monetarist thinking has increased by millions. Millions is oh, terrible sadness, terrible sadness. So it, again, it's an exploration for our, our relationship 
to these areas. Just finally now, in this looking with care and interest into our home life and exploring what that means in each of the rooms of our house, in our whole relationship to everything which happens in our house, and I think particularly to include in that, I feel, the whole area of what smoking does. Of that, I also feel, in our home, needs to be looked at with great care. Smoking is so destructive. There's a whole moral issue, and there's an ethical issue. These tobacco barons in the third world, they're increasing the tar and nicotine content to make the people in the third world more quickly addicted to cigarettes. Now, when you and I are buying cigarettes, we're supporting that industry. And bringing the ethical and moral, as well as the health factor, as well as the way it affects the environment, means our friends. Every time, if a person smokes three cigarettes, in the presence of that other person, what that means for that other person as a passive smoker, they have smoked the equivalent of one cigarette. That must be considered, and it must especially be considered for children. Because smoke hangs in the air, and it's being breathed and rebreathed and rebreathed. And to look to, and that's any kind of smoke, to, in terms of tobacco or marijuana or whatever it might be. And to have pollution-free home in that respect, to give care, and that's an expression of love and compassion and kindness and thoughtfulness and making one's home an ashram. My parents came down, my father has been smoking for 40 years. We have in our, just a little one, those little signs, you know, this is a no-smoking zone in this house, in our front door. And I said, look, I said, Dad, this is no smoking, this house. He said, what? And, and you know, he was actually willing, in the rain, to go out in the garden and have a fag. Can you imagine? <laughs> He'd rather be out there in the wet and have a cigarette than being in the dry and not smoke. Just what a phenomena. <laughs> in that consideration, so that when we come home, and if we can bring into our home too some meditative practice, you know, some people find sitting morning and evening, and sometimes a like, person wishes to sit in the morning, and all the good intentions of the mind are such that one can't get up. So one might have to explore going to bed so early in the morning, I mean in the evening, I'm sorry, going to bed so early in the evening that by four in the morning or five or six in the, the morning one can't bear lying in bed any longer. <laughs> and, and one gets up and since there's nothing on the telly, <laughs> and since one's got three hours to wait before one goes to work, oh well, might as well meditate then. Something which brings one to whatever. So just finding ways and means. And the other is this interconnectedness outwardly too, with one's friends, establishing, if one can, group sittings, giving care and attention to these wider issues, being involved, I feel, where there's often this resistance, being involved in organizational things. People need to come together to help make things happen. And an expression of this was yesterday at Amherst that there is a group, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and this was established five years ago by some of the best-known Buddhists, one might say, on the West Coast. And it's now beginning to generate further and further outwardly. And some 20 people um, met in Amherst yesterday to have a meeting 
about what can be done for peace. And that's the operative word, shall we say, in that group, in that small organization. And it doesn't matter one iota whether a person considered themselves a Buddhist or not. If they had a monkey peace fellowship, I'd join it. It's not the question of the religion or whatever. The peace element is there. And it's just finding ways and means in our life where we can express our being, express our creativity, express our concern, and make our home a place which is an ashram. And in that light and love and awareness and sharing and communication and touch and discussion, and all of that can take place within the home and the difficulties and the confrontations and the conflicts and so forth. But there's a, another kind of spirit within the home which is developed by the people within the home, then it's of great benefit and significance for ourselves, for our friends, and for our children, and for each generation. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with love. May all beings live in harmony. Now, for us to have a loving-kindness meditation together for 10 or 15 minutes, please. In this loving-kindness meditation with you today, probably because it happens to be my 40th birthday, I've been given a little thought of the past and the present, and I would like to make a focus in this loving-kindness meditation in the form of expression of appreciation and respect and gratitude for three people, three teachers who have been an influence in my personal life. Just sitting, just being present in life in this moment. Just being in touch with the moment and being aware, mutually aware of each other here in the Dharma Hall. Experiencing heart, warm feelings towards each other and the interest in each other as we expressed in our meeting yesterday afternoon, the sharing together, being in touch with each other in this moment. During the days we've been together, we have been through our ups and our downs, our difficulties, pains and hurts, warmth and excitement. We've been through a great deal together making the journey as human beings being on the face of the earth together. And for each one of us to actually, actually be here, it's required the influence and the support and the cooperation of countless other human beings who have made it possible for us to be together in these days. And giving inside of oneself 
acknowledgement to that, to those who make things possible for us. The constant revelation of our interconnectedness. Connected through the food we eat. Connected through the building whose roof we are under. Connected through the transportation. Connected through the clothing. Connected through the friends and family. Connected through the past. Countless people. And we like just to, to personal level, speak of three influences. Some 14 years ago, when I was in my mid-twenties, I went to see abbot of a forest monastery named Ajahn Buddhadasa. means servant of Buddha. And I went to see him. I was traveling, hitchhiking up through Singapore, Malaysia, through southern Thailand. And I asked him a question about life, about existence. And he looked and laughed. And he said, do you really want to understand? And I said, yes. And he said, if you really want to understand life, what life is, you can't afford to become attached to anything. You can't grasp onto anything. You must be free. And he laughed and he was, remember, he was sitting in a rocking chair. And he swung back and he took his robe, which was wrapped around under his arm and across his left shoulder. And he just pulled it up, pulled it off him, pulled it up in the air. And he said, not even being attached to something like this, this piece of cloth. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. So he called a novice and told the novice to take me to one of the huts. And he said, just think about what I've just said to you. I also spent time with another teacher in Thailand named Ajahn Damodaro. Ajahn means teacher, Ajahn Damodaro. And Ajahn Damodaro ran and still does a Vipassana center. Very critical of scholarship, of study, of reading. Just insists on meditation practice, on sitting, walking, standing and very much encourages his monks and nuns to do their practice outdoors. We assume because he didn't trust us when we were inside. <laughs> but anyway. And each day the bell would ring. And four o'clock the day would begin. And several times it happened that I would come out of my hut, whatever, twenty past four or half past four, and he'd be sitting on the port in, right in front of my door. And I opened the door and I said, oh hell. 
And I realized that, that he didn't say anything, he would just look and turn and smile and go down the two steps. And I realized the silent message of practice and the reminder of being awake and being up, being conscious. And I spent a period of time there. Ajahn Buddhadasa is now 79. Ajahn Dhamadaro is now 71. And the third person, who I do not know personally, but have long-standing affection for, is J. Krishnamurti. And I began listening to his taped talks and his reading in the 60s. And as I mentioned to you at the beginning of the retreat, I had the opportunity to meet, talk with him a few months ago. And he said to me, he said to me, when I was a young man about your age, which is 50 years ago, he's, 80, he's uh, nearly 89 in a couple of weeks' time, he said, when I was a young man about your age, I'd been away from India for many years, and I came back travel in India and to give some talks and he said to me and he said when I saw India he said it hurt my heart so much that I had to go to bed for a week he said I saw the suffering and the poverty and the injustice and it took me seven days to get over it. And of course, since then, with extraordinary dedication, Krishnamurti, Buddhadasa, and Ajahn Dhammadaro, and others, have maintained a continuity of commitment in this world the expression of something which is a true message of love and awareness. And I just wish to give, express my own heart's appreciation and, and gratitude for their impact, for their support. still being here in the present, being with each other, recognizing the, the interconnectedness. Being aware of the depths of indivisibility in which all this rests, in which all this has its being. May you and I explore ways to bring awareness and love to our earth, to the planet, to the universe, to people, to creatures, to the environment. May all beings live in peace. 
May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony.